jump right into uh, Titus chapter 2. So if you turn to your Bibles there, we want to continue in our series in, uh, let, called Letters, where we're looking at the books of Titus, Philemon, and Jude. And what we see in this series are some very personal letters written to pass something on to someone else. It's really all about passing on uh, a legacy of faith. And we talked about that last week, the importance of passing a legacy from one uh, generation to the next. And let's just say uh, uh, today was an uh, awesome picture of how we are striving to do that here in these young ladies and how they ministered to us. And, and, and I think we're doing a good job, but we need to keep it up. And it's very important for us to see that. And Paul wants to leave his mark on Titus and on his life and through his life. He wants to leave a mark in Titus's life and in Titus's ongoing ministry. And, and he wants Titus to do the same. And that's what we've seen so far. Uh, the way we leave our mark is by carefully watching our living. Carefully watching our living. So what we see in, in chapter 2 is the importance of, of righteous living. We talked about passing on a legacy of faith last week. And today we're going to talk about uh, how we uh, uh, must pass on righteous living. Now, there's a way in which Christians ought to live. And we, we know that. It's not a, a surprise. It's something we uh, have grown up knowing. And th there's certain things that our parents taught us, and, 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 and some of that's just good morals everybody ought to have, but particularly, there's some things that Christians ought to be doing, and, but the problem and the difficulty is that churches and, and Christians have long taken things to legalistic ends, and, and what they do is they give salvation level importance to our behaviors, and may say something like this, well, you can't be a Christian if you do blank, or you are not a Christian if you've done this, or you must do this, in addition to trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior to be saved or to, be, uh, to have eternal life. And, and what we see again and again is that's not what Scripture teaches us at all. Uh, our living, our, yes, we should have righteous living, but the fact of the matter is that the imparted righteousness of our Savior, Savior should result in righteous living with our lives, not the other way around. Righteous living, us trying to strive after living a certain way, does not impart to us salvific work, saving work. Living a good life in your own strength does not attain for you salvation. It's quite the opposite. It's, it's coming to a place of humility, coming to a place to, uh, to understand that we are desperately in need of a Savior, and that Savior imparts His righteousness to us when we pour ourselves on Him for the forgiveness of our sins and say, Lord, I can't do it, but I need you. I know you can, and I trust you. I ask you to save me. I ask you to forgive me. And the Lord, when we become Christians, when you became a Christian, 
when you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, not only did the Holy Spirit come to indwell you, but Jesus literally imparted his righteousness to you so that when God looks at you and me, he no longer sees our uh, mediocre acts and our uh, failures and our faults and our sins and our, our worst, <laughs> our worst best efforts. And he no longer looks at us and says, well, they'll do. Or no, they didn't make the cut. No. When we became Christians, the righteousness of Christ covers us. The Bible says that we are robed in righteousness. We sing a song that says we are dressed in righteousness alone. And it's not your righteousness. It's not my righteousness. In fact, Paul states that his righteousness was as filthy rags. That in and of himself, his own righteousness was not enough to impart to him salvation. Jesus Christ, when you became a Christian, clothed you in his righteousness. And that righteousness now, it saved you, but then it imparts to you the ability to live righteously with your lives. And we should, certainly, but it is not a, or a religion or a, uh, it is not living righteously that saves us. It's not a means to salvation. It's the result of salvation. Now, this was what Titus was facing as he was coming into this place and Paul was telling him that the, the Judaizers were there or the circumcision party uh, that was trying to, that had infiltrated this particular uh, church or groups of churches and, and they had been spreading this false lie that you must have Jesus and circumcision to be saved. You see, they had imparted a behavior, they had imparted to a behavior salvific importance, salvation level importance. But that's not what is true. The truth is that Jesus saves you and then you live your life beyond that. And so they were saying, you must do this and you must do that. And done, they had infiltrated the church and it was ransacked and, and having difficulty. And, and Paul saying, you gotta, you gotta impart You've got to pass on righteous living as a result of salvation. The fact of the matter is that the imparted righteousness of our Savior should result in our righteous living. It's not a means to salvation, but it's the result of it. Paul is encouraging this type of living in today's passage by noting specific things this church was taking to the wrong end. So he knows what's going on because he's been in correspondence with Titus. We don't see those, but we, we know that Paul knows what's going on because he begins to address specific instances, specific things that Titus needs, needs to lead and deal with among the people he's leading. And they, uh, these folks weren't ensuring that the right things were being passed on to the next generation. They were quite the opposite, passing on the wrong things. So let's look at Titus chapter 2. If you are able to stand, would you stand as we honor God's reading, the reading of God's word? But you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible and sound in faith, love and endurance. 
In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind, and in submission to their husbands so that God's word will not be slandered. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. Slaves are to submit to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back, or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God, our Savior, in everything. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lust and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. While we, are, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the, Lord, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Proclaim these things, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. You may be seated. So I think we see three things about righteous living in this passage and we're going to kind of dive in and look at some of what's going on uh, specifically that Paul's addressing. The first thing is that righteous living is passed down intentionally. Righteous living doesn't happen by osmosis or just by being together or coming to even just to a, a church service together. There has to be intentionality. That's why it's very important that we equip our children's ministry and our uh, 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 student ministry with leaders that are imparting to them the, what, what's required, righteous living, how to live according to what their faith in Jesus, how to become a Christian to begin with, and then how to live that out. It's important that we do that, and it's important... Not just that we say, yeah, we'll, we'll hire Roger, we'll hire now Jordan, we'll hire those folks, and they can do it. No, it's our, all of our jobs. They administer it, but it's all of our jobs to impart intentionally what righteous living ought to be like to the next generation. That's what Paul is telling Titus. He's saying, hey, tell all the older people in your congregation, and I, Paul said it, not me, so don't be upset with me, Okay. But he said, all the older, right? And he says, tell them to invest in the younger. Now, he knows some specific things that are happening there. He mentions some older ladies that evidently had a problem uh, uh, doing some excessive drinking. He mentions that. But he's saying, hey, invest your lives, be self-controlled in your own lives so that you can invest in the lives of those who follow you. Help them to see what true righteous living is like. Live with them day in and day out and show them how to walk this Christian walk daily. And listen, if you've ever thought, I've done my time, I've, I've served my time in the church, and now I just want to sit and enjoy it. I've, I've been there and I've done that. I, and I understand. But according to Paul, according to Scripture, 
Your job is not done yet. We desperately need you. I guess I'm on that line, right? I guess I just turned 40, so I don't know where I land. I'm, I'm calling it younger, okay, for a little bit. Some of y'all said it's, you're still young, so I'm going with it. So we need you, right? We need to see you faithfully walking and living your life. And we need your wisdom. We need your guidance. We need your help. Both men and women, we, we need your help. So Paul tells older men and women to live righteously. He uses the word self-controlled with every group he mentions. Older men, older women, younger men, younger women. Be self-controlled. That's a message our world needs to hear. We talked about that in the last series, so I won't go into it any longer. But the world is saying, live your life however you want to. <laughs> but the word of God says that we ought to be self-controlled. We ought to live sensible lives. Worthy of respect, it says. He tells them to teach the younger men and women these things. So it's important that we are intentional about teaching these things to live according to biblical instruction. So what does intentionality look like? It's one of my favorite words because it, it, it causes us to think not just about what we should do, but how we should do it. So I love that many of our connect groups are multi-generational. I love being in a multi-generational church. You know why? Because that means I've... I am forced to be around people that don't look like me or think the things that I think or like the music that I like or like other things. They can strengthen me and help me and grow me and lead me and guide me. And then we can do that back and forth likewise. So get, get around people that are not the same age as you. Older uh, folks, if you, you're a little more seasoned in life, mentor some younger folks. Go out to lunch with them. Take, bring them over to your house for dinner. And, and some of us younger ones, let's do the same and, 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 and invite them to our houses and glean wisdom from them and, and get around them and get in groups. And that's why I love an established church that has so many generations because we need each other. We need to live intentionally in this way and pass down righteous living to one another. Now, we, we see some specific things here that the text addressed, and so I want to address them. Paul gets specific because he knows the specific needs of the congregation, and he, he specifically says that the older women are to help the younger women to teach them what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, Workers at home, which really just means guardians of their home, kind and in submission to their husbands so that God's word will not be slandered. And I just want to say as, as a little bit of an aside, but I think it, it applies to it all, is this word has been, has been, uh, has been adulterated in our society uh, on two sides. The, the, the world tells us, Submission is a bad word that we don't need to have anything to do with. And then, unfortunately, others have taken this and used it as a club to beat over people's heads. And, oh, you, you know, uh, uh, yeah, the Bible says the woman's supposed to be submissive to the man, right? So we've, we, we've had this thing that we've, 
we, have, we need to rescue the real meaning of this word. It has been demolished in our society on either side. We need to rescue this word. Yes, that word submission can be a military word that talks about hierarchy inside of a military, but that's oftentimes used also as a non-military word that means essentially letting another go ahead. Letting another go ahead or possibly uh, yielding like, like you do at a yield sign, right? You let someone go in front of you. Or if you're like me, you try to get out there before they can. So, but that's not what a yield sign is truly supposed to be. And so you're supposed to stop, or not stop, but just slow down so someone can go in front of you, right? Letting another go ahead. Think about this. Jesus submitted himself. He submitted himself to God. He submitted himself to the rulers over him. He submitted himself the night he allowed, uh, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he allowed soldiers to come and take him. He went peaceably. He submitted himself. Other scriptures have us all submitting to one another. So we can't take this scripture and say, well, you know, uh, one person is supposed to submit to the other one, and the other one can live the high life, and no one has to, they don't have to submit. That is a gross misrepresentation of what this scripture is. But people have taken it to that end. And you know what I'm talking about. I don't have to get into that. We, we have taken that to the wrong end for so long. In fact, it says that not only are husbands and wives in Ephesians, does it say husbands and wives are supposed to submit to one another, and the whole body is supposed to submit to one another. It tells us that the husband is supposed to sacrificially love his wife, and so he's supposed to lay down his life for her. And if that's not submission, I don't know what is. And that's what Jesus modeled, and that's what we're supposed to do. But all, what does all this have to do? So we're rescuing that word, right? It's not what we've made it to be. It's, it's not a club to be, to be used to bludgeon someone with. But it's also not this thing to say, oh, we don't need submission at all. That's a bad word. And so we're going to run from it. No, submission is a, a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing because submission in all of our lives, whether it's the husband to the, uh, the wife to the husband, or the husband to the wife, or us to each other, or Jesus himself to God his Father, or even the people over him um, in, when he came to earth. Submission is a beautiful thing. Because submission, and don't miss this, submission on our, in our horizontal, horizontal relationships, submission in our human relationships, prepares our hearts to submit in our vertical relationship. And so we all ought to practice it. What does God say? God says he gives grace to the humble, but what does he do to the proud? He opposes them. Not, willing, not being willing to submit in relationships is pride. And so that means the pastor needs to submit and the little kids need to submit, and everybody in the whole congregation needs to practice submission. Why? So that we will be better at coming under the authority of our Lord and Savior. Submission in our human relationships prepares us to be more submitted to our heavenly relationship with the Lord. The second thing that we see 
is that righteous living is meant to be demonstrated. Paul tells Titus this righteous living is to be so clear and compelling that it would put our opponents to shame is what he says. He's like, listen, live your life so self-controlled, so uh, subdued, so sensible, so, uh, 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 so uh, self-controlled and, 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 and righteous that when your opponents try to come after you, they can't say a word. Paul wants us to see and understand that our righteous living is not just for us, but it's so that the world can see Christ in our lives. No one can say anything bad about us is what Paul says. We're to demonstrate and live out these truths, live out this, this uh, beautiful picture of Christ living and working in us and through us. Paul even addresses some of the new Christians uh, within this body who were enslaved people, telling them that they should live well with their masters for the glory of God, demonstrating faithfulness even in that relationship of bondage. Now, just as the word submission has been hijacked by our culture on one end or the other, and, and we, we miss the, the beauty of it. Scriptures like this in, have been used in the past, unfortunately, to defend slavery. And they have been used recently, on the other end, to discredit Christianity, saying that Christianity is founded on things like slavery. But that is, either one is fully misconstruing what's happening in this passage. You see, this was... Uh, this was a social law that these people were owned by other people. It was something that took place in the ancient world. doesn't make it right. And so people will say, well, why doesn't Paul address it? Why doesn't he say, hey, buy your freedom, get, be, become free? Why doesn't he, why doesn't he rail against that? Why isn't he a, an abolitionist? Or why doesn't he do these things? Well, the, that's not the point of what Paul's writing about. But we do know that in another text... Paul addresses, uh, in fact, we'll, Jason will preach on this in a couple weeks, in Philemon. And what we see is that Onesimus was Philemon's servant. And uh, while Onesimus ran away, he became a Christian and was, was, uh, was trained by Paul, was discipled by Paul. And Paul sent him back. But Paul, in his letter to Philemon, says, hey, why don't you give him freedom? He's your brother in Christ now. Give him freedom. Don't own him any longer. And so Paul does address that. You see, we can't just take Scripture and one, one passage and come to these conclusions. We must understand it in the whole context of Scripture. And so Paul does address it. But in this moment, in this moment, Paul is, uh, what Paul is trying to do is he's helping uh, Titus to understand where he served in uh, the, the enslaved people. Uh, was allowed and some of these slaves became Christians and Paul is merely acknowledging the law of the land and is more concerned with faithfulness to Christ so that he uses the word as much as he uses the word self-control in this passage he uses the word so that and so he does that so that the unbelieving slave owners may come to Christ as well 
Paul's more concerned with faithfulness to Christ so that more people will come to know him and hopefully through that be released from their bondage. What Paul is urging Titus is to ensure people are living their righteousness for all to see. Older Christians, non-Christians, younger Christians, unbelieving slave owners, and the entire world. He wants all people to be able to see the righteousness that we exude and that we have and that we're living out. The third thing that we see is that righteous living is the aim of our lives. Paul, in verses 11 through 15, says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godliness, godlessness, deny godlessness, and worldly lust, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope of the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he talks about how Jesus gave himself so that we could aim our lives toward righteousness. And we come back to what we said at the beginning. Righteous living doesn't bring about salvation, but salvation came to us because Jesus bought it for us. And so we become righteous, we're, we're clothed in his righteousness, and it in turns, it in turn propels us to live a life of righteousness, live a life worthy of what Christ accomplished for you and I. So, what do we do? What do we do? Number one, number one, we bask in the fact that Christ died for us, and when we've trusted him, he has made us righteous. Because if you don't have that, you can't live righteously. You can't. You can't. You and I cannot live righteously on our own. Paul, again, Paul said, my righteousness is as filthy rags. It's, 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 it's not equal to the righteousness of Christ. So Jesus' righteousness covers us. And we live in that. We soak it up. So that... When we, when we skin our proverbial knee or somebody pokes us that we bleed out righteousness. That we're so consumed with it. We're so soaked in who Jesus is that it comes out of our pores so that people can see. And then what we do, we soak it in, we live it out, and we live it out in such a way that the rest of the world can know. You see, if Jesus merely wanted to save us for heaven, and I'm looking forward to heaven, I want to be there. I want to be there. I want to be in Jesus' presence. But for whatever reason, the Lord is tarrying to take me there. And if the Lord wanted us 
to simply be prepared only for heaven, then when he saved you, it would have been, beam me up, Scotty, right? And there we are. But he hasn't. Why? There's more people that need to know. And you and I are meant to share with them. You and I are meant to live out Jesus for them to see. And so that's why we need to be soaked up with who Jesus is so that no, no matter who's looking at our life, they won't have anything bad to say about us like Paul said, and our opponents can't even come against us because they see Jesus in us. So where are we aiming our lives? What are we aiming it toward? Is our aim to live our lives for us and for our satisfactions and for our own joys and pleasures here on earth? Or is our life aimed at Jesus so that his righteousness can consume us and flow out of us for the rest of the world to see? So at the moment we're going to sing, I pray that you would ponder that question. This is not just a moment for someone to come down the aisle and get saved or somebody to join the church. I hope that happens today. I, that would please me in so many ways. I'd be so excited. But we come and listen to a message every week and sing songs every week so that our own hearts are pricked and our own lives are changed. Let's take a moment just to say, Lord, help me to be changed by you today. Help me to aim my life toward you more today. And I pray that the Lord would work in your heart and life. If you are here today and you'd like to trust Christ as Savior, I'd love to share with you how to do that. If you want to join the church, come. We'd have that conversation. I'd love to start the conversation with you. Whatever God is moving in your heart and life to do, respond to him today. This is an opportunity for you to do that while we sing. Would you bow your heads with me? And this uh, we'll uh, pray. And then once we're done, we're going to sing. Lord, we love you. Thank you, God, for your righteousness. Thank you, Lord, for what you accomplished. And help that to be the aim of my life, Lord, to live for you. To aim my life towards you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? And as you stand, we're going to sing.